Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we speak with veteran Afghanistan correspondent Lynn O'Donnell. I left Kabul on the morning of the day that the Taliban took control and I went back because I wanted to see for myself, with my own eyes, what has become of the country since they took over. Plus, Monaco's first paperback is out, featuring 50 essays to improve your life. There isn't a single formula to create the perfect place to live. And, as self-important master planners have learned, you can't commission everything from scratch. What works here might not work there, but we would like to outline a few universal starting points. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show speaking with veteran correspondent Lynn O'Donnell. She spent decades in Afghanistan. She fled last August when the country fell to the Taliban. This week she went back. Her visit lasted just three days. Most of that time was spent being interrogated by the Taliban. Lynn is now safely out of the country, and Emma Nelson asked her why she decided to go back to Afghanistan. Well, I went because it's almost a year since the Taliban took control, and I left Kabul on the morning of the day that they took control, which was the 15th of August last year. And I went back because I wanted to see for myself, with my own eyes, what has become of the country since they took over. So that's why I went, to see for myself what the situation is. What happened? Well, I did have a lot of meetings. I did see what the situation is. I talked to a lot of people. I went in good faith to the foreign ministry to register my presence as a foreign journalist because I was there on a media visa that was issued by the embassy in Afghanistan. I had a meeting with a man who calls himself Abdul Kaha uh, Bolki, not his real name, who lived in New Zealand for some time and who is now the spokesman for the interim de facto foreign affairs ministry. He told me that uh, the security intelligence agency did not recognize me as a journalist. He brought up some stories that I had written that the Taliban objected to. He read out headlines. Everybody knows that the reporter doesn't write the headlines. And he said that I was not a real journalist, that I'd made everything up. He demanded that I hand over notes and voice recordings and video recordings of interviews for specific stories. And when I said that I wasn't going to do that, that was his job if he wanted to verify them, he said that that was more proof that uh, all the stories were made up and false. Then he told me that the Taliban had attacked an Afghan television station for a false report, which is true. Tolo TV in 2016 during the siege of Kunduz, a city in the north by the Taliban. And he told me this by way, I believe, of a threat to my safety. So you're in a situation which is clearly very unstable. At what point do you realise that you are not going to be getting out of that room, that it's the Taliban who are now going to take charge of you? Oh, I got out of that room. See you later, Mr. Bolke. Yeah, see you. If there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. Well, how about you tell the intelligence agency not to ask me to leave the country, not to deport me? Oh, that's up to them. 
So a little while later, I was contacted by intelligence agents. They wanted to call me in. They said they'd call me back. They didn't. They contacted me the following day. That was Tuesday. And I said, look, I'm preparing to leave the country because I had expected that they would do as Bolke said and deport me. He said, that's up to me, not him, betraying a little bit of defensiveness about their own power and position. And eventually they came to me, four of them, one carrying a gun, two quite self-important agents of the General Director of Intelligence. They took me from my guest house to their headquarters and we spent the next four hours in a room in an office while they shouted at me, berated me, abused me and then told me that unless I tweeted a confession that everything that I write is rubbish, false, made up, that they would send me to prison. So what did you do? Well, I said, Okay, tell me, you know, I picked up my notebook and my pen and I said, well, what do you want me to write? And so they dictated it. So, you know, I typed it out. They passed it by an unknown boss. So this is, you know, the part of their lies. They said to me, oh, and the boss is a woman. And then they put the, put the boss on speaker and it's a man. It's like, like, are you guys crazy? It was so Kafka-esque, you know. Then we had it back and forth. They edited it. Their boss decided what it was going to say. And then, you know, we worked out the technology of cutting and pasting it onto my Twitter feed. And they made the, the thread and then they tweeted. And then I, you know, I hit the button and I tweeted it. Then they had a look at it online and they didn't like it. They asked me to delete it and they had another little bit of an edit and we did it again. Then they said that they would take a video of me confessing that I don't know what I'm talking about, makeup reports and had not been coerced. So we moved the furniture around and one of the guys sat in front of me with his iPhone and recorded me saying exactly that. My name is Lynn O'Donnell. Um, I call myself a journalist, but I don't know anything about Afghanistan its history or its culture and everything that I write is rubbish and made up. And I put my headscarf around my neck and held it up like a noose and said, and I haven't been coerced into making this confession. We all had a bit of a laugh and we did it again. <laughs> and then they said, okay, you can go. He's like, oh, your hand on head. Oh, I've been under such so much pressure. They bundled me into their up-armoured car and took me back to my guest house. At any point, did you think that you weren't going to get out? I didn't know, Emma. I mean, these are not predictable people. There's no law. There's no rules or regulations. There's no security. They act with impunity. If I'd been an Afghan, I probably would still be in that room or worse. I know that they want diplomatic recognition. They want to be recognised as the legitimate government of the country, which they're not. Not one country recognises them, not even their friends, Pakistan, Iran, China, Russia, even Turkey. Nobody recognises them and they're desperate to be recognised. Putting me in a hole in the ground kind of scupper that, at least in the short term. So I did have that in my favour. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I felt no fear or trepidation. I didn't know what they were going to do with me. I didn't know if they were going to beat me up. I didn't know if they were going to handcuff me, tie me, keep me in that room, put me in another. I didn't know what they were going to do. So I was just myself. I, you know, it was like a struggle session. They kept demanding that I explain myself and then I'd go well and then they'd just shout at me again it was it was silly they told me that there are no gays in Afghanistan and then asked me to justify using the word extremist in my reports you know <laughs> okay well I think saying there's no gays in Afghanistan is kind of extremist don't you and then Mr Zaheel starts telling me that if he found out anyone was gay he'd kill them you know just nutty stuff like that and like I said Kafkaesque if I was going to write a 
situation comedy satire about a dysfunctional intelligence agency and the screw-ups in charge, then, you know, I've got a template in my mind and of my own experience of where to start. As a journalist, you are renowned for asking very good questions and for pushing back. At what point did you think, that's not worth it? We just have to do the tweet. We just have to do the video. I had a call from my editor at Foreign Policy. He'd heard from the grapevine that something had happened to me, that I was in custody. And, you know, they never took my phone off me. So I was I was able to live text what was going on on a WhatsApp group with location monitoring set up by Australian diplomats in Qatar with my friend and colleague Masoud Husseini, who could see on the map exactly where I was. So it wasn't like they didn't want me to communicate and they could see me writing text. They decided that this was evidence of my working for secret services, that I was a secret agent. And I said, oh, my God, t- please tell me which agencies, because I'm freelance and I, I could I could use the cash and I'll send an invoice if you tell me who it is, you know. My editor called me up and I told him that this is what they wanted me to do. And he's like, yeah, just whatever it takes, just do it. I mean, as soon as those tweets hit my Twitter feed, people started saying, this isn't Lynn. For instance, somebody said Australians don't spell, what was the word? Um, oh, I can't even remember now what the word was, but we use S's instead of Z's. So this isn't the sort of spelling an Australian would use, and this isn't Lynn's language, something is wrong. And people were very alarmed by it. I can't even remember your question now, Emma. I think I've started rambling. <laughs> for those left in Afghanistan, what is it like for them trying to report what's happening? Well, they can't do it. You know, there is no such thing as freedom of speech or free media, and there hasn't been for a long time. And I've been reporting on that for a long time. I reported before they took over that it was happening in areas where they were taking over, and it would happen across the board once they did take over. They detained journalists, they beat them, they killed them. Those who could flee the country have fled the country. Many are still in hiding in Afghanistan. Many are living in Pakistan or have been able to go abroad. There is no such thing as journalism as we know it and those people who say that journalists working for their organisations can function undeterred are lying. There is no freedom of speech, there's no free media, the lights have gone out. Lynn, will you ever go back? Oh gosh, I'd love to but I think that under the current circumstances it would be reckless. I haven't heard from my driver. People that who were associated with me have been detained and interrogated. My job is to do no harm in my reporting, and I think that there is a very real possibility that I would bring harm to others should I go back, and I'm not going to do that. They say that journalism is the first draft of history, and the day who say it tends to be somewhat self-pleased journalist. But it is a makeable case. However, actual historians at the Center for Urban History in Lviv have already been busy documenting the war in Ukraine over the past few months, taking oral histories of residents and cataloging digital histories from online sources. Bodan Shumilovic is the head of educational programs at the Center, and he's been working on a special project with students to create diaries of the war. As part of that project, he's also delving deeper into the psyche to look at how we dream. As an organization, we had to react on what was happening in the country, and the center was quickly reorganized into the shelter. Most of our academic events couldn't take place anymore. 
we hosted people who were searching for temporary shelter and we still have them and then we had kind of group meetings discussing what we can do basically during this difficult period some of us had to kind of relocate families and and so on but then rather quickly we realized that we need to focus on documentation that's what we can do as historians then depending on the each uh, directions we are the small team of people but each of us has some specific field me as a teaching person let's say this way <laughs> i had a group of students also and it was not clear how all this study studying process will you know evolve there was a panic and people were running all over the country and we didn't even know how many students remained but then in order to keep them kind of not structured but kind of at least they felt in order that they feel life is still structured and and going i offered to all of the students at the catholic university cultural department that we can write together diaries of war and this was not a kind of personal stories but we orient, oriented them that these would be documents for the future something like uh, you are writing history for the future and out of 60 something people i had volunteering uh, more than 50 and then out of them maybe a bit uh, let's say half like 20 something started writing these diaries and then over one month we had half still writing <laughs> so at the end of the second month uh, i realized that this project can be called two months of war and uh, now we translate these diaries into english in order to make this project more visible for international audience i managed to find funds for this external funds so we have uh, money for translations and over the summer we will be ready to share this with scholars abroad and then we also think to continue this project and within this diaries project as i call it uh, we developed also dreams of war and this was also informed by the historical knowledge we know that in certain periods dreams can be treated as a sort of fiction some of our colleagues they collect fictional stories fiction it means literary yeah so people recall because center records like oral history interviews about the real experiences whatever you've you know mean by real <laughs> when people are in stress and they recall you some stories you always can imagine various additional or or some so some parts of the story will be more emphasized than others yes so in this regard we don't make this kind of harsh differentiation between like a real document or the document about the real story and the fictional let's say like a literary story so dreams are considered part of this fictional set of sources the important task was not to make anybody suffer more than they suffer in general so to avoid let's say emotional stories because this was really on the edge and everything was felt very kind of fresh and difficult also so we involved a psychotherapist 
a philosopher who is teaching philosophy at the National University and I was kind of from the history and cultural studies field. So this was a collaborative project and we recommended them, them I mean students or those who volunteered to make diaries, that you can focus on whatever things, like except emotions, let's say. You can write about media, you know, what was the, the major trigger in media over the day, or your relations with your family or with your loved ones, or how the everyday boredom changed, you know, or how the spatial situation changed. And then they could select, they make their own settings of what they want to record. But then it was impossible to avoid emotions. And then we said, okay, you don't have to describe like what you feel. You can describe what you imagine or what you, you know, have dreamt about. And then basically dreams appeared as a natural one of the sources. So then we announced that, okay, we are collecting not just diaries, we also collect dreams. <laughs> and I created a mail and made an announcement on our center's page and also in other media. So people started to send us dreams from even the United States. ask me about the structure of dreams or you know the stories that we have in dreams they are very different by now so it's not the collection of 300 dreams no we don't have even a hundred but some stories they reappear we think that we make free choices but often we are constructed by metaphors let's say this way and these metaphors they often guide the way how we perceive reality and then how our consciousness when it's not controlling everything reconstruct this reality during the dream and interestingly that then you have the consistent reappearance of certain metaphors in dreams like you know the shelter animals family space when someone is continuously trying to disappear or they run away and so on so i would say Globally, all dreams have certain metaphors that continuously reappear. But why, why it is then valuable? It is valuable because then when people recall dreams, they recall them in conscious state. So it can be easily compared to literature, let's say, of fictional stories. And in this regard, when they recall them, they emphasize specific aspects. It's almost the same as you would recall your conscious experience have you left the city while you know evacuating from the war because you would emphasize the train or the dock the weather or the police or whatever you know you make selection and in dreams you also make selection and by comparing various forms of selection we can then analyze later on what was on minds of those people again this is a small group of people but still i think it's a very evocative and interesting source for the future you are listening to the curator of monaco 24. national monuments and landmarks speak deeply to a country's sense of pride and identity that's why in times of conflict they often become targets and their destruction often sends ripples across the globe it was precisely that concern that led to the World Monuments Fund to hire Katerina Goncharova as its Ukraine Heritage Crisis Specialist. She is tasked with helping protect the country's heritage in these difficult times and supporting professionals around the country to safe-proof monuments and lay the ground 
for future rehabilitation. Monaco's Carlotta Rebelo met up with Caterina in San Sofia Cathedral in Kyiv, one of the many iconic landmarks that's been identified as being under threat during the war. We're standing just in front of the St. Sophia Cathedral, one of the most valuable treasures of Ukrainian people and UNESCO World Heritage Site. The building itself is nicely preserved, regardless of the threat that we all as a professional community shared during the first week of the war, because we were all worried that the St. Sophia Cathedral will be one of the first targets of Russians. Luckily, nothing like that happens, so we're all kind of amazed with the way that the building and the complex of related monastic buildings preserved. The work you're doing is essential in normal times, let alone during a time where we know that landmarks and places that really go to the core of identity and national mm -hmm. pride are targets, sadly. Mm -hmm. How has that changed what would have been your traditional work to now have this urgency to ensure these landmarks and monuments can be best preserved? When the war is still unrolling and the scale of damage is so insane that we literally have to protect what we can and the way we can. Because for now, I think that the most essential issue is the issue of monitoring the condition of buildings, historically valuable buildings, development of program or a strategy, how to actually preserve them, in what way. And if there are some resources, then of course, urgent stabilization or conservation needs to be applied, simply because we cannot wait till the war is over, because the risk of losing damaged sites is so overwhelming that we have to react right away. Now, the work you are doing as Ukraine Heritage Crisis Specialist is not just about this cathedral here in Kyiv, but other landmarks as well around the country. Talk to us about your day-to-day -day these days, and we know it's not easy to travel around the country. How does that work in practical terms for you? Well, the first issue is safety, of course, because if it's not safe, you don't go simply. For example, in, so to speak, newly liberated areas like Sumy, Chernigiv, uh, you would never like to go anywhere close to Kharkiv, of course, <laughs> and Odessa or Mykolaiv, because it could be too dangerous. But otherwise, of course, I've been traveling to Lviv, where we had one of our projects to build a protective structure to mm -hmm. safeguard the uh, facade of the Black House and its iconic sculptures. We have other projects as well, and there are more of them coming, scattered around Ukraine, and especially in those areas that in urgent need of assistance and urgent need of resources. We're talking about, again, newly liberated areas, those areas that have been under threat. Therefore, it could be more difficult to spot the project than actually to manage it, simply because those who actually need the support usually do not scream about that because they simply do not have resources to, to speak out, to formulate their requests. And therefore, this is our mission to ask them, to work with them, to help them and navigate them through the process of application and actually managing their project. I wanted to ask you as well about those who are putting in the hard work, the specialists, heritage specialists, archaeologists, preservation work, the teams you are working with or perhaps training. What does their day to day work entail these days? You see, the professional community is really engaged with what is happening in the country. Therefore, human resources 
resources and professional resources are really minimized simply because a lot of those people are joining the military or serving at territorial defense units or volunteering. As for now, some of them are coming back to their job. And of course, a lot of people who are engaged in cultural preservation or anything to do with culture are women. And what do women do during the war time? They're protecting their children. So a lot of them flee the country. So as for now, things are trying to come back into the everyday, day-to-day practical activity, like business as usual, but it, of course, cannot be business as usual because the war is here. It's too hard to speak about that in front of Sofia that is doing its preservation work so brilliantly, but otherwise, in other areas, in other sites, there's a lot of challenges. One of them is, of course, the resources. We're speaking about people, professionals, we're speaking about money, we're speaking about materials because logistic is an issue and sometimes you may need some materials that cannot be shipped inside of Ukraine. So you need to ask for the donation or someone else to come and provide you any assistance in that. More than that, the funding that used to be spent for preservation are freezed for the moment. Therefore, the work of international community is really essential. Since it cannot be business as usual, we literally need to have some assistance, some experience from those who actually conducted preservation in war zones and conflict areas. And therefore, we are so happy to have all kinds of international organizations providing methodological assistance and all kinds of support given the circumstances. We have a lot of communication with a bazillion of institutions who had the experience conducting preservation in war areas. And of course, this practical experience counts and has a significant value. Do you have a favorite detail or feature here of St. Sophia? Actually, if we talk about exterior, I do have a favorite feature. For example, those eagles on capitals of the first floor, let's say, of the bell tower. Because if you look at the decoration, they look some kind of not from here. They're wearing little crowns, right? They're wearing little crowns and they look so much like Russian symbol, national symbol. So once we had the research, we came up with a hypothesis that those eagles were added later. Because when you look at the decoration of the facades of this brilliant bell tower, those eagles look like a little bit naive and not that very... It looks like the master who made them is not that crafted as those who made the general decoration. I find it kind of tricky and questionable. (laughs) Thank you very much to Carlotta and to Chris Charmack, who are reporting from Ukraine for Monaco this week. And now a highlight of my show, The Stack. I had the pleasure to speak with Josh Hickey. He's the founder of the Hydra Book Club. Yes, we're talking about the Greek island of Hydra. And from the 2nd of September, if you are there, you can go to this lovely bookstore and they only sell books of writers who are actually inspired by the island. Let's have a listen. I refer to it as three different things. It is almost first and foremost, beyond a bookstore, it is a museum show. So this is an installation in the museum on the island of Hydra in Greece, in which I present a thoroughly researched anthology or collection of all of the literature that has been written by authors linked to this island, Hydra. So what it is also is a bookstore because it is a functioning 
retail operating bookstore in which I myself am there selling books. So this is a, a new way of approaching both a bookstore and a museum show. And then thirdly, and this is something that I maybe underestimated or didn't anticipate the extent of it, but it is a community center. So this is now on the island, a source of pride from the locals, a gathering point, a place where the writers that are still living there can come and exchange and do readings and, you know, present their, their work alongside, you know, these more historical writers. Tell us about your experience uh, in Hydra. Is, is it a place that you've been going for, for years? Is it kind of a slightly more recent discovery? Tell us a bit more. I have been going there for many years. You're, you're correct. I've been going there for about 12 years. And each year, it would become increasingly an increasingly longer stay, you know. So I was, went the first year one week, the second year two weeks, the third year three weeks, <laughs> and so on. And, you know, previously to doing this project and to sort of, you know, uh, pushing myself into a new field of literary curation, I had uh, another job and I was working for you know, a big luxury company. And my, my vacation time was really framed out in August. You know, I live in France, uh, for those listening. And in France, you know, everybody pretty much takes the month of August off all at the same time. So when I left that role and, you know, developed this new role for myself, I was able to stay much longer. So my time became more invested in the island, but then also, you know, at a certain point when you are visiting the same place again and again, you know, the reason that I am going back anyway, and I feel this is, you know, mostly true for people who, who get hooked on a certain space, it's because you make these friends, right? So you make friends and then that's your only time every year that you can see these friends who perhaps live on the island or perhaps only visit during you know, the month of August. And so when I became a little, let's say, freer in my organization of my time, I could spend more and more time there. And then began the question of how else can I invest in my relationship with this island and in my relationship with my friends there. And so because I come from a culture background, I decided to invest in culture. And that's how this project uh, was born. What authors have, uh, you know, visited uh, Hydra for the purpose of, of literature, either writing or for inspiration? I presume they're also quite international, not just uh, Greek writers, right? That's correct. And there's, you know, I, I always begin the answer because this is a, you know, a question that I receive quite often because sometimes, you know, sometimes even incredulously people say, oh, well, how can you do that? There must not be that many authors. And there are. That's what's so incredible about Hydra. And, you know, there, there's a really sort of a vast network of writers, and you, you correctly state uh, both international and Greek, and they've also come there to be with one another. So this is another particularity about this scene here, where I always say, you know, sometimes people go to an island or the top of a mountain to write to be around no people. Here in Hydra, people are coming to be together. And so that starts in the 1930s with a Greek painter named Nico Gikas, who begins to invite both Greek and foreign artists and writers to his house on Hydra. So this is really the kickoff, if you will, or the genesis 
of the, the artistic and certainly the literary scene on the island. So this is in the late 1930s. This is Henry Miller. This is Nobel Prize winning poet Yorgos Seferis, Greek. This is Lawrence Durrell. It's Patrick Lee Fermer. John Craxton, who was the, uh, the artist and illustrator who was doing the covers for Patrick Lee Fermer's books. This is the whole sort of beginning crew that's coming to Hydra, staying there and writing from there. And then that web of friendship and connection sort of, you know, spreads out and then other Greek people are coming, Margarita Liberaki, who was also living partially in Paris in the 1950s and 40s and 50s. She was friends with Jean-Paul Sartre. So there's always this mix of Greek and international and with a real global relevance in a way of, of this crew. The late 1950s, that brings you into the period of Leonard Cohen, of the Australian Charmaine Clift, her husband George Johnston, American beat generation poets like Gregory Corso, Harold Norris, Harold, Alan Anson, Alan Ginsberg, you know, and that brings you into the 1970s and 80s. There was Margarita Carapano, a very big Greek author as well. Today, there's people like Polly Sampson, there's Deborah Levy, you know, the list I've given you, you know, one third of the people there. So these are the big names from, you know, this sort of uninterrupted flow of artists and writers working together on the island for nearly 100 years. Wow, that's amazing. And only for the names you told me, that's an impressive lineup already. What yeah. about the physical space? I mean, you, you were telling me it's in Hydra. When is it open? Which period of the year is it open? And, and then I want to hear more as well about the traveling book club. So you are actually, you know, going to other places to promote this, which I find it quite interesting. That's correct. So the Hydra, you know, which is really the core project and home for the project, if you will, is the late season. So that's September and October. It's for two months. I do, you know, just in case anyone's there during August and I'm there, <laughs> I do some appointments. You know, there are, there's a way to connect with me and get and books and see things and talk to me. But the real exhibit is from September and October. You know, Hydra has a very interesting cultural programming happening every year. And it runs from, you know, the end of June until the end of October. So I fit into the second half of that cultural season, if you will. And that's a very good time. And yes, it does now travel. So, you know, there's a couple of things here also. The, the way that people consume media or consume literature is also, you know, I've made a link between that, that style of literary exposure or consumption and a specific place. And so this is enabling, you know, locals and repeat visitors to delve deeper into their relationship with the island, to understand how the scene developed, to, to read these stories, which, you know, some didn't even take place on the island, the text itself, but the authors reading about their lives, their link to the island, it's part of our shared heritage, right? So this, this is the community aspect of it. It really creates this new way of bonding with our neighbors on the island. And then it also enables the visitors because, you know, of which there are, are many, it's a very popular island now. It enables them to really augment their 
their experience while they're on the island. If you're reading the Colossus of Marusi, for example, some of the most brilliant passages of which are written about Hydra while you're on Hydra, this just really is a mind expansion and does something, you know, almost spiritual to connect you even more deeply to the island. So this style of site-specific curation has gotten me a lot of attention suddenly, and people want it. So I'm talking right now, it's gone to New York. I'm doing one in Bodrum for the month of August in the Machikizi Hotel. And I did four days also in Spetses, the neighboring island, uh, during the classic yacht regatta, and then in Hydra. So this year I'm, I'm taking the Hydra riders, but I sculpt the selection to relate to the place that they're in, okay? So for example, in New York, I did a heavier uh, presentation of the American beat generation poets of Leonard Cohen, even though he was Canadian, he lived in New York. And I also had a lot of Spanish translations and different languages to pertain to a public in New York City, which varies slightly, obviously, to the, that which is on Hydra. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this week also marked the release of the Monaco Companion, our first paper book book. We have 50 essays to improve your life. I chose two essays just to give you a little taster. The first one is with Grace Charlton. She celebrates Australian ugliness. Aussies might overuse the term you beauty but rarely in respect to their city's architectural vernacular. Too bad, the country's hodgepodge of styles is worthy of appreciation. As someone who grew up in the aesthetic void of Geneva and its painfully stern Swiss suburbs, trips to visit relatives in Sydney always felt like switching from black and white television to Technicolor. The overgrown and fragrant eucalyptus signaled arrival at my destination on the city's leafy north shore. Through the haze of jet lag, the low-slung streets, shopfront and cafes of the eastern beaches were no worse off for their peeling paint. I still admire the twee Victorian terraces of Surrey Hills and the Gothic revival Kinkopple School overlooking Rose Bay, all a contrast to the CBD's steely glass high-rises. Sydney, to me, is impossibly beautiful. Historically, this enthusiastic and undisciplined approach to architecture has received a bad rep. It was the bete noir of architect, commentator and modernist Robin Boyd, whose 1960 book The Australian Ugliness bemoaned the unsightliness of the jumbled cityscapes and the suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne. According to Boyd, this sorry state was the result of the lack of a unified identity, with too many influences imported from Europe, America, and Japan. Goyd, as you can no doubt imagine, was a rather curmudgeonly soul who adored the order instilled by an architect's pen. 
He bemoaned Australians' preoccupation with artificial beauty, a condition he dubbed featurism and described derisively as an overdressed, overcoloured, overbearing display of features. He said that it was best observed in the garish colours and ornate patios of the main city's suburbs, specifically pouring scorn on Melbourne, which he called the featurist capital. Boyd was derided as unpatriotic and harsh. Many think that his ire stems from what author and cultural critic A.A. Phillips called cultural cringe, a term for the inferiority complex suffered by post-colonial nations, constantly comparing themselves to the perceived superiority of older, mainly European metropolises. That said, Anyone who has spent time in Berlin, London, or Paris will see that cities are messy, odd, and incomplete, irrespective of their age or location. Australian cities are a jigsaw of architectural codes that, just like the cities that predate them, don't always make sense. I would choose this exuberant pandemonium over Baron Haussmann's contrived boulevards in Paris or Amsterdam's gabled townhouses. The Opera House might have been dreamt up by Nguyen Utsun, a Dane, but it was Sydney Siders who had the iconoclastic impulse to approve its design in the first place, and it was those same people who embraced it. The truth is that the overwhelming beauty of Australia's nature is hard to compete with. There will always be tension between the country's built environment and an ancient land scarred by colonialism and the displacement and mistreatment of what came before. Boyd does make some salient points about how its architects could consider landscaping and the use of local building materials, rather than painting over structural deficiencies with thin veneers. However, recently reading The Australian Ugliness only increased my love for the kitsch motels and carnival style of Antipodean roadsides. Not all Australian architecture is beautiful. No country is purely aesthetic. But hopefully, the Boydian instinct to shame or cringe can be overcome with an appreciation for the honest eagerness for creating a sun-drenched home that courts the breeze and plays with expectations of what a building can be. Nowadays, what was once called the convict stain is worn as a badge of pride in the fact that Australia has developed its own architectural vernacular. Clayton Orzaxi, Atelier Andy Carson and Solomon Troop are some of the many architectural practices designing for Australia's environment and its citizens' needs rather than relying on imported models. Even often ridiculed capital Canberra is brimming with gems. Its brutalist cylindrical bus shelters from the 1970s are now an unlikely icon. Perhaps the word unlikely sums up the Australian architectural sentiment best. Thank you very much, Grace. And one more for you. This is from Carlota Ribeiro on What Makes a City. Urbanism can be a peculiar field of interest that's both specific and general. It's at once the size of a city and a citizen. 
My beat, producing Monocle 24's Yervanus, a weekly radio program and podcast, might examine how a piece of good signage could influence whether people walk or jump in a car, or how big bits of urbanism can be playful. Think of Bjark Ingels' ski slope come waste incinerator in Copenhagen. There's also context to consider. Tower blocks can be a cool decision for mass housing in muggy Singapore, but stick out like a sore thumb in a low-rise European capital. When I started producing the show, which is ably and affably hosted by Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck, I was worried about the topic and feared wading into a minefield of technical terms and complicated academic research. That couldn't be further from the truth. Almost a decade later, and with hundreds of conferences and countless hours waiting by various mayoral offices under my belt, it's more fun than it sounds, I promise. Well, I can tell you that if you live in a city, you already implicitly know and care enough to be part of the conversation. All citizens are urbanists by default. I've had the privilege of hearing from those on the ground who are working with, and sometimes against, local government to get things done in a way that benefits the community. I've also met a few visionaries who didn't care about being popular, but instead obsessed about leaving a better city than the one they inherited, be it with improved rubbish bins, more parks or safer streets. Entrepreneurs and ordinary citizens have played their parts too by reviving railway arches as independent shops or creating neighborhood pocket parks. There isn't a single formula to create the perfect place to live. And, as self-important master planners have learned, you can't commission everything from scratch. What works here might not work there, but we would like to outline a few universal starting points. Treat these lessons as rules of thumb and read on for a few pointers on building better places to call home. 1. Get moving. This means swift, clean and safe public transport networks for a start. A bike hire scheme with protected lanes will help for shorter journeys. And though we don't believe in banning the car outright, we need to create more room and cleaner air for cyclists and pedestrians. Everyone adores character, but it's time to retire the squeaky, slow trains and invest underground or in new trams that service busy routes and ditch paper tickets. There's a reason why Seoul's CoRail, Singapore's EasyLink card and Transport for London are all success stories worldwide. Also, keep in mind that mobility can connect geographically different areas of cities. For example, the La Paz Mi Teleferico, or cable car, which joins up the city at different altitudes. Finally, cities should encourage people to walk more. It's a win-win for people's health and the planet. Two, center your thoughts. City centers tend to take shape over time and without much thought. That's how so many became boring shopping parades full of samey chains. Independent, honest and interesting retail can help add a sense of place, revive down-at-heel precincts and neighborhoods and give the economy a shot in the arm. And groceries and a new outfit too, of course. Look at Lisbon's Lojas com História program. Cities should encourage entrepreneurship schemes and supplement rent for small businesses to keep their centers as places of commerce, opportunities and ideas. A mix of architectural styles, sizes of units and uses also keeps things interesting. Three, go green. 
Research suggests that merely being close to green spaces on a daily basis can significantly affect a person's health, mood and stress levels for the better. Parks, gardens and community farms are a city's beating heart. These are places for people to gather, exercise and take part in sport, children to play, markets to flourish and much, much more. They also cool cities down, store carbon and add oxygen. All they need is a smattering of benches for people of all ages to sit on and enjoy the view, and some areas where nature can grow shaggy and wildlife can move in. Four, create areas for children. Many people move out of cities when they start a family, not because they suddenly hate them, but because they crave more room, and most cities aren't designed with tots in mind. That's why projects such as the temporary play areas in the streets around Bilbao are interesting. A simple design tweak can allow children to play outside and meet their neighbours. We need a few more mayors to consider this and soften the edges of urban life for younger citizens. They're the electorate of the future, after all. Five, make space for fun. Some people like the romantic idea of cities, the thrill, fun and opportunities, but just as many move to them for practical reasons, such as to study or work. People stay for a whole lot more though. At their best, cities provide a frisson of fun. They're democratic, artistic, odd and alive. They offer the freedom of anonymity and the promise of fame. Plus, places to be yourself, blow off steam, eat well, drink too much and do whatever you feel like. Pity the city that makes drinking by a river illegal. It's possible to make room for fun, but still treat people like adults. Cities aren't going anywhere, and despite the scepticism sown by those who flocked to the country when the pandemic hit, it will continue to thrive no matter what comes their way. Even now, 70% of the world's population looks set to call cities home by 2050. So we owe it to ourselves, each other and the citizens of the future to make them the best possible places to live in. And a reminder, the Monaco Companion is out now. To the world of food, of course. A Tuscan recipe now from the kitchen of Milan's Remulus restaurant. Hello, my name is Laura Santosuasso and I am the chef at Remulas Small Bistro in Milan. Today I'm gonna share with you a very Italian summer recipe called the Pappal Pomodoro. It comes from Tuscany, but it's very popular everywhere here in Italy. And I love it because it's a natural born vegan dish. So it's truly sustainable and it's suitable for everyone. It's also a very brilliant way to reuse stale bread and it's even better when cooking advanced. So this is my first hack to cook it now, but eat it later. First step is to peel tomatoes. We need the perfectly ripe tomatoes. We cut an X in the bottom of each tomato and we place them in boiling water for five, six seconds. Then we cool them down in a nice bath. You can now easily remove the skin and chop them into four or five pieces to remove the seeds. 
Second step is to break the bread into small pieces and combine them with tomatoes and we just set aside. Meanwhile, we slice some white onions and cook them in a large saucepan together with extra virgin olive oil and some minced garlic. We want them to cook very slowly until they turn golden brown and perfectly caramelized. Now we add in bread and tomatoes seasoned with salt and pepper and add some high quality canned tomatoes that will intensify the flavor. We cook the pappa al pomodoro for at least two hours until it's soft and uniform. If we want a smoother texture, we can use a whisk, but we cannot blend it. This is the tradition. I love to serve a pappa al pomodoro the day after at room temperature, garnished with basil leaves, some ground pepper and a drizzle of olive oil. Enjoy! Finally on the show, we find out the story behind one of the most iconic features of the Helsinki skyline, and we explore how the building tells the history of the nation which it calls home. Much like the Eiffel Tower in Paris or the Statue of Liberty in New York, the Helsinki Cathedral is an iconic building that has come to symbolize the city. The imposing white cathedral with its green domes is such an integral part of Helsinki skyline that it is often printed on posters and stamps depicting the city. Standing on a hill overlooking Helsinki's central Senate Square and the city's popular harbour, the cathedral looks as if it's keeping a watchful eye over what goes on in the Finnish capital. In the summer months, the steps leading up to it are a popular hangout for people enjoying a coffee and a picnic with their friends. And in the winter months, it's not uncommon to see kids riding a sled down the snow-covered steps. Despite being such an iconic building, the Helsinki Cathedral has a somewhat troubled history. Originally named the St. Nicholas Church, it was built in the early 19th century as a tribute to Tsar Nicholas I of Russia, the then Grand Duke of Finland. Soon after Russia invaded Finland and annexed it from Sweden in 1809, Russia decreed that the Finnish capital was to be moved from the western Finnish city of Turku to the small village of Helsinki. Tsar Alexander I commissioned the German architect Karl Ludwig Engel to draw up plans for a new majestic central square to the new capital. The square would feature a seat of government, the university and a cathedral for the city's Lutheran population. In a symbolic move, a small wooden cathedral dedicated to Ulrika Eleonora, the Queen of Sweden, would be demolished to make way to the new grand church. Although the cathedral was modeled after the St. Isaac's Cathedral and Kazan cathedrals, both in St. Petersburg, it soon took on a life of its own. Unlike the ornamental and opulent Orthodox cathedrals, the St. Nicholas Church's plain and austere aesthetic emphasized its Lutheran nature. Its white facade, when seen against the blue sky, made up the colors of the future flag of independent and free Finland. 
When seen from above, the shape of the church resembles a Greek cross and it's symmetrical to all directions. The frugal design language continues on the inside with light blue and white walls and simple wooden pews. After a hundred years of Russian rule, Finland gained independence in 1917. The church's name was changed from St. Nicholas to Grand Church and then later, in 1959, to Helsinki Cathedral. Today, the building receives over half a million visitors each year, making it one of Helsinki's most popular tourist attractions. But it is also very much an active church, hosting weddings, church services and choir recitals. It is where the nation lays to rest its greatest statesmen and where the Finnish president and other political leaders gather together with members of the public, as is the Finnish way, to celebrate Finland's independence on December 6th each year. There are those Finns who are uncomfortable with the idea of the country's most iconic building being a gift from Russia. But they are a small minority. Most Finns see the Helsinki Cathedral as our own. And in many ways it has come to symbolize Finland's struggle for freedom against a looming threat from the East. In December 2015, thousands of Finns of all ages gathered on the steps of the Helsinki Cathedral to sing the Finlandia hymn, a patriotic and much-loved symphonic poem by the nation's most celebrated composer, Jean Sibelius. It was one of the most sublime events the city has ever seen, and it demonstrated in a very palpable way just how important the Helsinki Cathedral is to the sense of belonging and togetherness in the Finnish capital. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>